And at this time, the children are dismissed. And as they filter out, I'll invite you to find John chapter 17 in your Bibles, or in the Pew Bible in front of you, or on your telephone, or your tablet, or your laptop, or your desktop, if you rolled that in with you this morning, or the microchip inserted into your brain that you can access. John chapter 17, as you're finding that passage, um, I was thinking about the sermon last night while Meredith and I were at a Christmas get-together at one of her friend's houses. Um, her friend, a uh, really good friend, longtime friend, used to work in the athletic department at Davidson, and she was there. She arrived as uh, Stephen Curry arrived as a freshman and got to know him before he became a big deal and got to know him as he was beginning to become a big deal and um, as Stephen Curry got more and more famous, he couldn't just walk around campus like a normal guy, apparently. And so he would often sit in Meredith's friend's office area between classes just for peace, you know. And so she really got to know him pretty well and still keeps up with him and will see him every once in a while. And so everywhere she goes, if people find that out, that's all they want to talk to her about. And uh, we have wowed Elias's classmates with just the fact that we know somebody who knows Stephen Curry, and they can't believe it. Uh, it. It's different to know somebody than to admire them from afar. It's different to admire Stephen Curry watching him on your TV or going to the games and watching him from the stands than to have spent time sitting together in a, in a quiet office many, many times just talking. It's different to have a relationship with somebody. Now, one of the maybe the greatest fact that's brought to surface at Christmas is the fact that we can have a relationship with God himself. Now, that's a, that's a fact that we have to let sink in a little bit because it can seem a little um, too spiritual to be able to grasp fully. But because God came God with us in Jesus Christ, because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, we can know God relationally. We can have a relationship with God. You know, knowing God is, is the most important thing you're designed for. And really, your life makes no sense apart from it. Knowledge of God is the key that helps you to understand all the whole rest of your life and the people around you and yourself and what's going on inside of yourself. So for the next three Sundays, we're going to spend some time knowing God. And the passage we're going to look at, we, we moved away from Mark last week. And as I prayed about what to focus on for the next three Sundays, I landed in John 17. And we're going to take these three weeks and work through this chapter, and this is an amazing chapter. It's Jesus praying, and we're going to listen in on Jesus praying. And through that process, I pray that we will come to, maybe for the first time for some of us, and and others maybe on a deeper level, come to know God this Christmas. Uh, So we'll read this morning just the first five verses, but I really want to pray before we do that. Uh, So would you pray with me? Father, we pause before your word, and we don't just want to 
leap into it. I don't want to just leap into a sermon presenting my notes and my thoughts and my illustrations and my explanations. And What we really need is for you to speak to us through your word. We need to hear your voice in your word. And we need you to help us to be open to it. And so that's what we ask for. We ask that this would be a miraculous moment together. Please speak to us. Please help us to receive your word. And please draw us into a relationship with you. Please don't let this just be a religious exercise. And we depend completely on you for this because it's not something we can bring about. So we look to you now. We're excited to see what you'll do in our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Let's begin just by reading through the first five verses. And then we'll go through, we'll just walk through it together and get to know God a little bit. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now the prayer goes on, but we're just going to take this, these first five verses. And I want to acknowledge up front, this is a little hard to follow, I think. Um, you jump in cold here in chapter 17, and it can be a little difficult to follow, but we're just going to sort of walk through it together and, and seek to understand it together. And we'll begin at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, it's referring back to John chapter 16, where Jesus had just been explaining in a very gentle and um, almost fatherly way to his disciples, I have to go. I read part of it at the beginning of the service. He's explaining, I have to go. I'm going to be dying for the sins of, of all who will follow me. And it's going to be really hard, but I'm coming back. It's after he said those words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, he's been talking about this hour or this time for a while to his disciples. He's been preparing them for this. It's the time in which Jesus would die for our sins and rise from the grave. It's also the time when persecution would really begin for Jesus' followers. It's the time when the Holy Spirit would be given to Jesus' followers. It's the time when they would be begin very sad and then become extremely joyful when they see him risen from the grave. And it's a time in which they would be welcomed into a relationship with the Father deeper than they had ever known before. So the hour has come. He's about to go to the cross. His prayer, in light of this fact that the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Glory is an extremely central element to God and to the Bible. It's all about glory. Now, glory, if you were to define what it means, it means basically the weight of one's greatness. 
And the idea is that God's weight of greatness, his glory, far surpasses the glory or weight of greatness of any other being that has ever existed. And here Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me, reveal and display my glory so that I can glorify you, so that I can reveal and display your glory. Why, why is it good to know God? I've talked a lot already in the sermon about knowing God. Why is that good? It's because he is glorious. The more glorious the being, the greater it is to know that being. Why is it so cool that Meredith's friend knows Stephen Curry for his basketball skills, but she also knows me and I play basketball every once in a while out here? Why is that not such a big deal? Why are Elias' classmates not thrilled to find out that he's Matt Broadway's son? Well, he shoots basketball sometimes. It's because the weight of Stephen Curry's glory, the weight of his greatness on the basketball court far surpasses the weight of my greatness out here shooting basketball with neighborhood guys. The greater the being, the greater it is to know him. And God is the greatest, the most glorious being in, in all of reality. That's why it's good and important and vital that we know him. So when we look in the manger, if you have a little manger scene set up at your house like we do, we have, I think, three or four, and you look at the little baby in there, why did he come? Why did, why was this baby born? We know the story surrounding it, but why? Well, this this is one way to answer that question. He came to reveal and display the glory of God and to invite people into a relationship with God in all his glory. That's why he came. This is so central that I actually printed out a five-page list of scriptures that explain that God does everything he does for his glory. And my actual plan was to read every single one of these. And now that I'm up here and I see your faces and I see some sleepy eyelids, I think perhaps that's not the way to go. Look it up sometime. This is your homework. It's all through the Bible. I'll just, I won't read every verse. But why, why did God create people to begin with? The Bible teaches he created people for his glory. Why did God choose Israel? The Bible teaches he chose Israel to reveal and display his glory in them. Uh, Why did he rescue Israel from Egypt? You know, the Exodus story. He loved Israel, but he didn't mainly do it for Israel. He did it to reveal and display his glory, because that's what God does. Why did he not cast his people away from him, even though they sinned against him? Why did he restore Israel after exile? Why did he protect Israel from enemies? Why did he send Jesus? Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did Jesus do good works and say the things he said? Each of these things is answered scripturally for God's glory. Why are we told to do good works? For God's glory. Why does God answer prayers? For his glory. Why does he allow suffering? For his glory. Why would he forgive our sins? Because we're so great he couldn't deal without us? For his glory. And it goes on and on and on. I won't test your patience. God does what he does for his glory. 
to reveal and display and proclaim his glory. That's what he does. If we don't understand this aspect of God, we won't understand him and what he's up to, and therefore we won't understand our lives. We won't understand reality. We so typically put ourselves at the center of the story, and therefore none of the plot points make sense. But the story was never about us. It was always about God. He is the glorious one. Over at my at Dave and Sandy's house, they had this puzzle that over Thanksgiving we were all trying to put together, and it's like a five-level plastic puzzle, and there's little groundhogs that stick their heads up in different places and holes in different places, and you've got to get them all arranged just right to get them in place. And I failed spectacularly at it. Many people did, and my nephew Aiden was about the only one, and my sister-in-law Andrea, they were the only ones that could figure it out. And so Aiden had to show me how to do it. And once he showed me, oh, it all clicks into place now. I understand now. That's sort of what this fact is like. When you receive it, when you get it, it turns all the puzzle pieces of your life into the right angles, and it clicks into place, and it makes sense. Oh, this is all about a glorious God revealing and displaying his glory. Now it makes sense. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and think about your life through this lens. If God does everything he does to reveal and display his glory, think about what he's done in your life or what he's chosen not to do in your life. Look at it from this vantage point and see if things look differently than perhaps they usually do to you. Think about the events of last week, last month, last year. What do those events mean seen through this lens that God does what he does for his glory. Every disappointment, every blessing, every challenge, every victory, an invitation, behold my glory. Let's go on, verse 2 and 3. Jesus prays, well, first he prays in verse 1, Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So why did that baby to manger come? One way to answer it is he came to reveal and display God's glory. Another part of that answer is he came to reveal and display God's glory by giving eternal life to everyone the Father gave to him. But what's interesting is how he defines eternal life. I wonder if before having heard that verse, how you might have defined eternal life. If you had a pop quiz on your way in and there was a slip of paper in the bulletin and it said, define eternal life. If you got it right, you get 100. If you got it wrong, you're kicked out of the church. Define eternal life. I wonder how you would have put it. Isn't it interesting how he put it here? I think we tend to think of harps, and we're all in heaven strumming harps. Things we've seen on cartoons. So for all eternity, we're singing hymns and strumming harps in the clouds. Man, does that sound boring. And so a lot of people do almost dread it. Oh, eternal life is going to be just... Like one long church service? Like church is good for about an hour. 
But eternity? I've, I've heard kids who are just more honest than adults frame it that way. And then others, and I've heard this at funerals, regrettably, view heaven as a chance finally to enjoy all our hobbies. Heaven's just going to be playing golf with God. Heaven's going to be going fishing with God and, and reeling them in every time. Now, both of those ideas are ridiculous from a biblical point of view. And they completely miss the point. Eternal life is knowing God. And that's really big. That, that's a huge point to lock into our worldview. Eternal life is not harps or hobbies forever. It's knowing God. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So many of us have lived a lot of our lives by an incomplete gospel, a gospel that says, if you'll trust and follow Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, period, and stops there. And that's huge, and that's very important, but it's incomplete. The full gospel is, if you will trust and follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you'll be forgiven of your sins so that you can be reconciled to God, so that you can know God, so that you can be in a daily, real-life relationship with God himself, so that you don't have to live in isolation from God, so that you don't have to figure out your life on your own, so that you don't have to waste your life worshiping lesser gods, and so that when you die in this physical body and you're united with him in his presence, it's a coming home. And it's a realization of everything you've always wanted in God himself. Ephesians 2 teaches that you were dead in trespasses and sins. as a type of death that we are all living in before we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it goes on later in the chapter to say, But God made us alive together with Christ. So the human condition is one of spiritual death. And what the gospel brings is spiritual life. But what is this? What does it look like? The chapter goes on to explain that it's being raised up with Christ and seated with God. It's those who were separated from Christ and without God who were once far off being brought near to God. In Philippians 3.8, Paul's able to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing God. In, in comparison with knowing God, everything else I could, I could lose and be fine with, so long as I don't lose God. Now, we all have those things in our lives where, so long as I can hang on to this, if I lose everything else, I'm okay. What Christ does is breaks our grip on lesser things and replaces it with God himself, because that's what we were designed to hang on to. Many people, there's a lot of studies out in particular about men, so men, maybe you can relate to this. Many people who've grown up in church turn away because they just get bored and disinterested with it. And men in particular, and you hear the phrase, there's just nothing there for me. Or you hear people in a certain age demographic say, there's just nothing there for me. And what they mean is there's no programmatic stuff there for them. I think one of the reasons why it can seem boring and disinteresting is because we quickly forget that this is about a relationship with God. And instead, we make it about religious practices. And what could be more boring than religious practices? 
for their own sake. Nobody wants that. What Christianity is, is it's not an invitation to religious practices. Okay, become a Christian. Well, what does that mean? It means you've got to go to church every Sunday. It means you can't drink any alcohol. It means you've got to read your Bible for 30 minutes every day. It means you've got to tell three people about Jesus every day. It means you've got to go to every men's retreat that comes along. It means you've got to give money, 10% at least, every Sunday. You've got to do all that stuff, and then you're a Christian. Nobody would accept that invitation. The invitation is, come be a Christian. Well, what does that mean? It means you get all your sins cleared out of the way so that you can have a relationship with God. So that you can be his son, his daughter. So that you can wake up in the morning in his presence. You can walk through your day in his presence. You can deal with every decision and challenge with him guiding your way. You can hear him speak to you. You can speak to him. Dealing with some tangled knot in your life, you can just set it all down and go for a walk and just pray it through with your Father, God, and trust that he'll give you the wisdom you need. So many of us in the the church, not Doolin's Grove per se, but just the church, all the church, think of Christianity as a get-out-of-hell-free card, and we keep it in our wallet and it's like a, um, some sort of a license that you have to keep up your training to keep it up to date. And so, well, I haven't been to church in a month. I guess I better go. I don't want to let my license lapse. I don't want to let my get-out-of-hell-free card lapse. i got to keep it up. Oh, I'll let it lapse. I should get baptized again. That's not at all what it is. It's nothing like that. Christmas reminds us it's nothing like that. Is coming into a relationship with the glorious God of the universe. So, as we're pausing, we're thinking about our lives through these different lenses. We're thinking about it through the lens of the fact that God does what he does for his glory. Think about your life through the lens of the fact that he does what he does to draw us into relationship with him. And suddenly more things start to make sense. If he does what he does to draw us into relationship with him through Jesus Christ things in our history can perhaps start to make sense, especially some of the harder things. Everything is an invitation. The pain in our life is God whispering to us, a relationship with me is better than personal comfort. A relationship with me is better than financial security. A relationship with me is better than certainty about what's going to happen tomorrow. Through Christ, he's always whispering, just come. Through Jesus, be forgiven and reconciled to me. Be my son, be my daughter. I remember what Christmas was like as a kid, and we had a couple different family get-togethers, and one of them was the, just called it the Broadway get-together, and it was at my grandmother's house. She lived across the field from our house. So we'd walk over there, and I had a lot of cousins, not a lot like some of you guys have. Some of you guys have like 60 cousins. I had what seemed to be plenty. To me, it's like, I don't know, I should, I should know how many cousins I have off the top of my head. Eight, we'll say. And we were the kids, and everybody else was adults. And the system, I know you all have a system for how your family goes about Christmas. Our system was every adult bought every kid an awesome gift. I don't know why that was the system. The Broadways are not extravagant people. But Christmases as a child was extravagant at the Broadway get-together. 
And so we'd eat, and the kids would would sit there salivating over the gifts, waiting for the adults to finally finish and come in, and we would just tear into them. And I can remember just the chaos of it all. And you're trying to keep your gifts near you, and there's wrapping paper that gets higher and higher all around you, and boxes and, and shreds and shrapnel from the whole thing stacking up. And at the end of the night, we would all get a large box. And what did we put in the large box to walk home with? Did we stuff all the wrapping paper and all the boxes in there and walk home with that? Delighted? And leave our gifts behind in the living room? Of course not. It's a silly illustration. I know that. But often that's what we do in the church. We, we All the packaging and all the wrapping and all the external stuff of Christianity, we get so distracted by it. And it accumulates so much, and that's what we end up wrapping our arms around. The stuff, the attendance, the gathering, the the stuff. And we walk through our lives with it all thinking, well, I'm a Christian. Things are supposed to be great. It sure doesn't feel great. I can't even see where I'm going with all this stuff. And we've left Jesus Christ behind. And we've left a, we've left a relationship with God himself behind. So are you? We have This passage makes us ask, are we? living our lives in relationship with God? Or are we just swimming in the wrapping paper of Christianity? Because the gift is God himself. So have we received that? If somebody asks you, do you have eternal life, which is such a esoteric kind of question to ask, do you have eternal life? You might first go to the fact, well, I'm a member of it at a church, or I got baptized. But what Jesus suggests here is that the way to know if you have eternal life is, do you have relational knowledge of God himself? Can you go to him in prayer because you're reconciled to him through Jesus Christ? Can you hear from him in his word because you're reconciled to him through Jesus Christ? That's really the question. Because one day, this life, physical life, will end. One day this will end. And there'll be no more churches to attend. And no more spiritual boxes to check off. It'll just be you before God. And is he going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you? Christmas must make us ask these questions. And it must draw us into, for the first time, or renew our relationship with God. You know, I know that talking about eternal life and talking about these spiritual matters, it makes sense to do here. You expect it. But out in real life, it just seems so, it it can honestly seem unimportant. Uh, Or it can seem like something I know I need to get to, but right now I've got this thing that's physical and right in front of me I've got to deal with. It can seem far off or it can seem less real then the real problems. I know many of you are facing real things in your life that are urgent. I just want to encourage you. I want to remind you that that's a lie. That these things we're talking about here are the most real. More real than, than this podium is your relationship with God. More real than this physical building is your relationship with God. Because one day the Bible teaches all this is going to be melted away and gone. 
And then you're going to realize the scaffolding beneath it all are the spiritual realities. Those are the eternal things. Those were more real than any of this. We're like kids glued into a video game. The video game seems so engaging, so exciting, almost more real, more like you're really living in the video game more than real life. Until somebody pulls the plug and you wipe your eyes and you realize, okay, that was something of an illusion. This is real. Well, Christ is going to return and a a cosmic plug will be pulled. And we will all spiritually be wiping our eyes and realize, oh man, all that stuff my parents taught me, all that stuff my Sunday school teacher was talking about, that's what's real. So this isn't impractical. This is the most practical stuff we could be talking about. Last two verses in our section for today, verses 4 and 5. Jesus continuing to pray, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we are again between the first advent of Christmas and the second advent of Jesus' return, recognizing that both advents, both uh, times that Jesus came and will come, were to reveal and display God's glory, specifically by drawing people into a relationship with him, bringing people into a relationship with God in all his glory. Every sermon this Christmas season is going to remind me of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. So I'll probably read it every Sunday. But I did read this last Sunday, but I think I've missed, and I bet you missed, the very final seven words. I bet you didn't notice the final seven words. So I'm going to read it again and listen for the final seven words. So this is describing Jesus' first advent. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Why did Jesus come? Why is he going to return? Why does he do everything he does? To the glory of God the Father. And how in your life does Jesus glorify God the Father most? By bringing you into relationship with him. That is the best outcome of this Christmas season. That you could be drawn into a deeper relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ in all his glory. So as you look at your little manger scene, that little baby was a Messiah on a mission. To glorify the Father by bringing people into relationship with him in all his glory. Have you received this gift? Do you walk through life with this gift of a relationship with God in all his glory? What would it look like to turn toward this? What would change if you viewed the world this way and if you lived your life in light of this? 
This Christmas, may we all come to know God in all his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we trust that it never goes forth without accomplishing its purposes. So we look to you to accomplish your purposes in our hearts. And Lord, I do pray that you would draw each and every one of us into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.